Hey, hey. Okay, so you guys know that I've moved my platform over to Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki. So everything is moved there. That's where I'm now housing all my parenting content. For a dollar a month, you can access all the episodes of my podcast, but no worries if you don't want to do any financial commitment at all. We'll continue to release selected episodes here on your favorite listening platform. And just so you know, I also put up free public posts and mini podcasts on that Patreon page. So all you have to do is head over to that main page, patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki, and you can see my free public posts and mini podcasts. Head over there to check it all out. And now on to today's show. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, hey, you guys. So today I want to talk about, I think, one of the most crushing aspects of the past year and few months of the pandemic. Certainly, it wrecked a lot of things. (laughs) But one of the things that I think was most damaging to our kids was this overall panic on the notion of falling behind. And I think it really affected our super little guys because it trickled down and it made everybody just so anxious that their child might be falling behind. And I kept hearing this in my work and I work with toddlers. So the notion that a toddler could be falling behind is literally soul crushing to me. Like they're so new. They're so learning all the time that somehow your three, four, five-year-old might be falling behind just feels like putting them on an abnormally high treadmill that's just going to continue for the rest of their lives. I, I don't love this falling behind notion, and I know where it comes from, and I know in a school setting, in a school culture, there is a a stay on track. You know, you have to stay on track to stay with the class or the, and, and you get labeled. And I think one of the beautiful things about homeschooling that I've learned is being able to not fall behind, to, to explore all the opportunities in learning and to not have to sort of keep up on this relentless track because I, you know, in all things, the track is designed for the average kid. You know, I'll get people even pissed off at me about my potty training book. And I'm like, how could one potty training book be effortless for every person? You know, like everything we read, everything, every track, so to speak, right, is is an average. It's not designed for every single personality and DNA sequence, you know? And so that is true of school. And I just think when we have learning and education, it can be this really rich experience. And some kids are going to be at different places. And it also just, it really puts pressure on kids and it puts pressure on us and we become not our best selves. And I know this from years of homeschooling, and I'm sure you guys know this maybe not in in a learning education way, but you know, when you're trying to jam something, you know, when say you're running late at in the morning and you're trying to jam through it, it always ends up a clusterfuck, right? You always end up, the kid ends up in tears. You end up in tears. Like it never works when we come from a place of panic because 
we get separated from that connection with our kids. And I know it, oh my God, For it, it's one of the things I've worked on in all our years of homeschooling is I'm like anybody else. I panic. Are, are we doing enough? You know? And then I go through this, it usually only lasts a couple of days. And now Pascal has like learned to catch me on it, but I get very disconnected from him. And I'm like, okay, I try to stuff his brain and it's just not how it works. Not emotionally, not socially, not, not for connectivity and our relationship. So anyway, I, I would love to just do away with that notion of falling behind, especially in the elementary years. It used to be widely acknowledged that kids like from kindergarten till third grade, it was just kind of a mess. And by third grade, almost all kids were even with each other. They caught up. And that has been just really wildly skewed of late. To give some reference, and I think I've mentioned this before, I'll be 53 this year. I went to half-day kindergarten and we took a nap. Like, we took a nap. (laughs) I took a nap and a half-day at kindergarten. And we didn't have this pressure. And still, Harvard and Yale were full. Scientists invented things. Mathematicians solved problems. Like there was still a really learned uh, society. So it's just gotten really, really skewed. And I have like theories as to why that's happening. And we'll kind of unpack some of it in this episode. But one thing that I'm finding both with learning and education, which then of course flows into social emotional growth and how kids play and, and the culture of your household is Parents are just, the families I'm working with are very, very skewed on what's developmentally appropriate. And this is very changed. It's very new. It's a drastic change because I find myself, as I'm working with parents, I find myself saying, no, 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 you're wrong. That's not how the development works. And so today I want to run through like what is developmentally appropriate in all these sort of areas for certain age groups. Because again, it's just, um, I find parents' expectations are very, very, very skewed. So first, let's kind of go over some things that I've learned about learning and education. And I think learning and education are sort of two different things. And how your kid learns may not have to do with the education system that they will be in in the future. So one thing I've learned on our homeschooling journeys, I really have learned a lot about how kids learn, both with Pascal and my community and my homeschooling community. And one of the things when you start homeschooling is they tell the, you know, the people who have gone before you say that you should do a thing called de-schooling. And generally this is a month per year that your child has been in the school system. And I realize your kids are little, so we're, I have a point to this. <laughs> So in de-schooling, what you do is you don't do anything formal. You take some time to just let things shake out. And in a pre-pandemic world, that would be, you know, a lot of social opportunities, a lot of museums, a lot of maybe watching movies together, playing games together. And you really try to observe your kid and see what sparks them. Because a lot of times what happens is when we're in the school system, your kid is away from you for a large portion of the week, right? So you don't see you see some learning that happens at home. And I always say we're all homeschooling. It's not like you get home and you drop your kid and you don't pay any attention to them and you don't teach them anything, right? But um, we're often not able to pick up how they learn because also they might come home with homework. And so we kind of, you know, and you're cooking dinner and there's got to be shower time and and all this stuff. So there's not a lot of time to just observe. It's like, get the get the assignment done. And one of the things is that there are different kinds of learning learning styles. And these are grouped into kinetic which means while moving, auditory, 
but you learn best by hearing things or visual. You learn best by seeing things. And everybody's kind of a combination of things. And that's why if you go into a typical classroom, you're going to see a lot of visual stuff on the wall. You're going to hear the teacher like repeating some key concepts, right? She's going to, every once in a while, kids have to move around. Arguably, they need a lot more moving around because kids, I think, are more naturally kinetic learners. But this is kind of fun. And it's even fun to kind of check out in yourself. A visual learner is going to love color-coded graphs and charts, they're going to have probably a planner, you know, a planner from hell that's like got all the markers and stickers. Auditory is they hear things best. So, you know, you might find yourself, wait, can you say that again? Can you spell that out loud? Pascal is an auditory learner. If he puts headphones in, he's had a couple of things that he's done online and he puts headphones in and it's like osmosis. The information just goes like right into his brain. It's really crazy. Kinetic. Uh, people are kinetic learners. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Aquila and the Bee. It's a spelling bee movie. It's really good. But she has a, a tapping. She taps and, and has a mechanism for remembering, uh, getting into a rhythm of learning. And one of the interesting things is there are, when you see the high level spelling bee, kids have all these sort of uh, kinetic ticks that they do to help them remember. I used to be a performer and you know, if I had a script, it was widely known that you you memorized your lines while you were on a treadmill or an elliptical or while you were running or something like that. So kinetic learning, I think at your kid's age is, it's almost at all kids, you know, your learning style can change and morph and your kids at this age are probably kinetic learners because they're so immersed in their body and the, the full body experience of life. Pascal memorized his times tables on a balance board. So he was, you know, secondary to auditory. He was very kinetic and he's still not quite a visual learner. It's way more auditory and kinetic. I share that this was a process of homeschooling because I didn't know about this when he was little. So, but you guys have an opportunity before your kids enter the school system to learn. And it's just, it's, it's information about your kid because if they have a visual assignment and they're struggling, you might be able to pull it into kinetic, or you might be able to pull it into auditory, or you might just say, well, you're not a, you're not a visual learner. So we have, this is kind of like a weak spot and we have to like spend a little more time, but it can go a long way in explaining why your child might be frustrated. So one of the things that I think also happened because I work with such a wide range of kids and I do have, I do parent coaching as well as, you know, potty training. And so I do get kids who are in kindergarten and first grade. And what I saw happen over the pandemic is we got cut off at the knees. We got cut off for these other social things. So I do think with your preschooler, you were probably used to going out and doing these really fun things, you know, be it the aquarium or the children's museum. So there were these inherent sort of learning opportunities outside of the home and outside of sit-down academics. So I think that's what I'll call it. That's what I call it. I call it sit-down work for Pascal, but sit-down academics, meaning like a quote-unquote lesson, right? That's how I'll sort of define it in this podcast. But, you know, obviously we had to stay inside, especially towards the beginning where, where it was like super duper strict. And I think we we had to fill. We had to fill that time. So having lost four hours at the Children's Museum, we were like, how can I teach my kid the things he would have been learning? And so we got a little crazy with the sit-down academics because we had this time to fill, right? And I saw this in, you know, reports from kids in Zoom kindergarten, which Zoom kindergarten is just like an oxymoron. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have been done. It should have been, you know, I get so angry at 
we had summer. We had when last March when we shut down and then we knew we knew that the kids weren't going to be able to go back to school in September. And I just get so angry at the administrative powers that be that the best they could come up with was Zoom meetings for elementary kids. Like there's so much project based learning that could have been done. And I know I know for a lot of people like you work, you don't have it in you to be, you know, super creative and you needed that help. But every report I got of Zoom kindergarten was just pretty awful. But anyway, what I did see is like unbelievably crazy, inappropriate learning, like memorization and assignments that I was like, kindergarten, they're asking, I like, I remember doing that in fourth grade. They're asking kindergartners to do this. And I think what happened was the teachers, you know, if you like imagine a teacher in a classroom, like doing an art assignment, there's going to be so much time filled with, you know, put the caps on the markers, clean up, get everything ready, moving around the teacher kind of going around the classroom, helping people. And then you have an art project on Zoom and it's like, okay, draw this. And maybe not all that time of classroom management that gives kids a little break, that kids that gives their, you know, they have a little social time. They can whisper to their friend. They have a little um, brain break. And I just saw like teachers plowing through work and this by no means am I faulting the teachers. I think the teachers are one of the biggest victims in the pandemic, but I think their higher ups demanded like more, more stuff, more proof, you know, and it was bad. So anyway, (laughs) I just want to let you know that I saw that happening and that was just so inappropriate. And I hope, I, I think we're all getting back to, you know, it seems like a lot of states are opening fully that they're, what do you call it? I'm, I'm recording this at the beginning of April, 2021. So I don't know, things could change on a dime like they did last year, but it does seem like more and more schools are going back to full-time in person. So that might instantly take care of itself. But I also wanted to throw in some very random tips uh, that I have learned about about education and learning and and academics that I thought might be helpful for you guys as your kids get a little bit older. This is so random, but it's so mind-blowing. And I mentioned it to a lot of, of the clients I was working with, which is, you know, we tend to have our kids learn to write with a pencil because a pencil seems like it's, you know, you can erase. But what you end up with is an inordinate amount of time sharpening the pencil, breaking the pencil, erasing, and you end up with very perfectionistic learning, my son being one of Uh, one of these kids erasing till the paper's gone. And so I follow this guy. He's, his name is Andrew Padua. He runs the Institute for Excellence in Writing, and I've used many of his programs. And he has this whole diatribe on using a pen versus pencil. And it was mind blowing. And it shifted my whole idea of education, which is when you're learning to write. And if you make a mistake, just cross it out. If you have a pen, you just cross it out and then you keep going. And this helps maybe not when your child's learning their letters, but as they're learning sentences and they have to, you know, string thoughts together, they don't cut themselves off. They don't cut off the thought. And so as you get into writing more and more, you know, fluently and, you know, as they get older and doing essays, you don't have that stop gap in the brain. And to me, I started doing this when Pascal was in first grade and it was amazing the difference it made. It improved his writing so much because he could hold his thought. And so I am hearing about kindergarten assignments that the kids have to write. They have to write like a paragraph. It's kind of crazy given what I know about actual 
like eyesight development and brain development at that age can be so different for each kid. So that seems like super heavy. But anyway, it's something I mentioned to a lot of parents that, you know, try doing it in pen and buy like the non-smudge pen. So it doesn't make a mess as your kid just keeps going. And you will find such a difference because the kid can just cross it out and then keep going. Another thing I want to mention, and this is in, oh crap, I have a toddler in the arts and crafts section is, you know, if you're finding a meltdown with your kid in any sort of sit down academics or any sort of idea, please remember that in real life, not everyone does every aspect of every project. And I use this example of my friend, Cheryl, who was an art teacher at Rhode Island School of Design, and she would run these camps and they're, you know, they're, it's, it's RISD, it's the pricey camps and the parents you know, she's ha- she had about 10 kids in her class. There was this one project where it was build a catapult. And so it was a week-long camp. And at the end of camp, there were three catapult catapults built for 10 kids. And some of the parents were kind of pissed because they like paid a lot of money and they were like, where's my kid's catapult? And so Cheryl sat everybody down at the end of the week and had this talk about how kids learn and how kids do art and how kids do projects. And the reason why is not every kid has the capacity to have built, to think the design, to draw the design, to draw the design to somewhat scale, to then get the materials that match the design, to execute the design, to build it. Like not every kid has that. And to do that so that every kid ended up with the same sort of catapult would be like a kit. And she's like, we're at Rhode Island School of Design. I'm not going to make your kids do a kit. And then she showed, and the three catapults were wildly different in size and mechanisms. And she went through each kid and really went through, okay, so this kid here is the big idea. So his catapult was like this really big catapult. He had the big idea. Then another kid needed to help draw it out. And they worked together, you know, it wasn't compartmentalized. But then, and then they needed somebody to build it. And so like four kids worked on this one project and it was killer, Now, Pascal was in the class and she said, you know, Pascal didn't have a catapult. And I know this about him. He's a manager. He isn't a leader. He doesn't have the big idea. But what he's really good at is going around and tweaking other people's ideas. So he kind of he went from group to group and like, hey, do you maybe if you did this, it would work a little better. So he was super helpful in everybody's design, but he didn't have his own. Do you know what I mean? And so I just think that's such a wonderful example. A lot of times when we're doing even basic arts and crafts, we expect, you know, I hate the idea of doing like a kit, (laughs) you know, but we expect the kid to do every aspect of it and, you know, come up with the idea, execute it, build it. And then when they're having a meltdown, we're like, you got to finish it. You know, we get very outcome oriented or we then go and finish it ourselves. And so I think it's just really important to remember that there can be a collaborative effort and to not expect your kid to do like every single thing. Okay. One more random thing about education is, is, and especially for this young age group, Oh, golly, under, I would say at least under six, this is true. Anything that's not tangible, a not tangible concept, so like you can't see it, taste it, touch it, feel it. These are super tricky. So the big ones are money and time are very, very tricky. Yeah. So is scope. So I'll hear people say, well, my four-year-old doesn't really seem to get, I'm trying to get him to understand the dinosaur periods. The idea of 65 million years ago does not register with a child under six, maybe even longer, depending on the kid, but they may be able to memorize it, but 
they're not understanding the scope. Planets in space, same thing. They don't, the, the scope of like traveling with the speed of light or sound is beyond this age. I had a friend, her kid, he, it's pretty cute. He's on YouTube. He memorized the periodic table of the elements when he was like three. And it's very cute. But it's that's a party trick, right? He doesn't understand the scope of the periodic table of the elements. So I really bring up money and time because that comes up a lot in my work is like, I literally have people say, you know, my four-year-old, you know, I'm doing a lesson on money. And it's like, it's useless. Yeah, like the concept of money is so tricky. It's it's a development. It comes, and that's not to say you ignore it, but keep your expectations level. Don't expect your child to get the idea that a nickel represents five cents. They're not going to get that. If you give a, a kid under the age of six, $1 bill or a hundred penny or, you know, 20 pennies, they're going to take 20 pennies because that's obviously more because what they can see and touch in front of them, there are, there's a pile of pennies and you're offering me one single bill, you know, do, do the experiment. The kid's going to choose the pennies every time because it's more obviously. Right. So that being said, let's jump into like what I want to really focus on three and four, since that's the bulk of my work and that's your preschooler. Now let's jump into like what's developmentally and we'll hit on a little bit before that so that you see where you're coming. There is such a big change. Oh crap, I have a toddler I wrote because I could see that people were missing the big change between two and three years old. There's a phenomenal shift that happens there that has to do with individuation, that has to do with your kid's autonomy. There's such a crazy growth there. So I really lump it into like zero to two, three, four, five, six. At zero to two, let's talk about play because that's a big thing. At Zero to two, it's called solitary play. The child might be like looking at their hand. They will be totally occupied. It's just them, no interest in what other kids are doing. From solitary play, we go into parallel play. And that's really around two years old. And that's when your child is playing next to somebody, but they're they're in their own space. They're not sharing. They're not collaborative. And then that's the next phase. So that's usually three, four. And that's preschool. And that's when your child goes to a preschool, right? And you can see cooperative, collaborative play start. And that's when, you know, like you guys are working together. You might be fighting, but you're working together to try to build a bigger ramp for the car to go down. Or you're going to have these, you know, it might be dramatic play. You might dress up and go do a back and forth with, you know, your Elsa and Anna. That's collaborative. You're playing together and each person's contributing to it, right? This is one of the reasons why developmentally, it's appropriate for preschools to demand full potty training. If you're doing parallel play and the other person doesn't really exist, it's cool to be pooping and just sitting in it, right? But when you start collaborating with somebody, that's a different kind of social interaction. And so you really should have your bodily functions taken care of, right? So I know a lot of parents are like, I don't know why preschools demand full potty training. This is one of the reasons, yeah? This is also something that I think parents really push too far, too fast. They expect their two-year-old to play with people, right? They expect sharing. It's not going to happen at this age, yeah? Because they're still discovering themselves. They're still discovering their own mechanisms. Like You'll watch. You'll watch like a kid struggling to pick up a little piece of something, right? Like their hands are still really learning how to hold things. Social-emotional at this age is big, 
black and white. And I tell clients all the time, I'm like, think of, you know, in the emojis, you got like the, the crying, laughing, like so happy. And then you've got the like one with the tears, like waterfalls out of their eyes. And then you have like the, the red beat face, angry emoji. Think in emojis at this age, because that's really what it is. It's these polar opposite. There's like so happy, there's sad, and there's mad. And that's about it. And again, it's not that we don't want to talk about other emotions, and it's not that we don't want to bring them up, but we the expectation that your child's going to understand jealousy, that's too high an expectation at this age. So we really want to work on, remember that there's no gray. And I hear a lot of parents trying to infuse gray, especially when we're trying to do like corrective behavior with, you know, quote unquote, bad behavior. You know, that's why I say shave your language. Don't use so many words because too many words are gray. Like, oh, you really shouldn't have hit him even though he took your toy, honey, because nah, that's too many words already. And remember, and I don't say this in a In a weird way, your average three-year-old and your average dog are equal in brain development. Obviously, our kids have much more nuance. Obviously, our kids are going to surpass that very quickly. But it strikes me, especially now, you know, with my puppy in front of me, all the words. Do I say all the words? Yes. Do I expect Maverick to understand all the words? No. And so when I'm working on, like, the behavior I want or, you know, a command for him, I'm like, don't use all those words. You're mucking it up. Use the one word that he's going to learn. So I just think that's kind of a good gauge of are you over talking or are you using too many words? Again, especially in a corrective sense. Now, at this age, life skills are super fun and super important. So your child at three and four should be able to do small chores. They may be able to make a sandwich, a basic sandwich. They may be able to help you sweep the kitchen floor, help vacuum, clear plates from the table, help you, you know, do the laundry, throw the laundry in the washer or the dryer. They should certainly be able to pick up toys, not necessarily by themselves. Yeah. So the key in three and four is they should be doing chores, but they're going to need help. And so again, that's where I see a lot of expectations where it's like, oh, he should pick up his toys. He has no problem taking them out. He should pick them up. And I'm like, yeah, but he needs help. He absolutely needs help. So do I I realize, do I realize, I sure do, that having your child help you do chores slows down the process by a lot, (laughs) right? So, you know, there's definitely going to be times where you just want to clean the bathroom and not have your toddler helping you. But if you constantly brush them off with chores, they're going to brush the chores off later. Again, there's no magical age where a kid starts just doing chores. And I see this online. I literally, I know a person and I was like, it was astounding to me that her, I think 12 and 14 year old, she was like, well, I think it's time for them to start doing chores, but they're really resisting me. And I was like, well, no wonder they're resisting you. You went 12 and 14 years without making your kid help around the house at all. Like, that's crazy to me because we all live in a space, you know? And I I see stuff online. People are like, oh, I, I don't need free child labor. Dude, it's not free child labor. It's teaching your kid to be part of a family, to be part of a community to pick up after themselves. But anyway, I digress. All of the things, don't expect any independent chores at this age. Absolutely help, 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 but help whenever whenever they can, whenever you have the time to have a sort of slowed down helping process. 
for play at this age, don't forget big play, big play, big play, big play. I've done so much on this proprioceptive movement, vestibular movement, strong core. This is what's going to set your child up to be able to sit still, to have the muscular development, to do the sit down academics later. If your child is struggling, if you're trying to do workbooks, if you're trying to do quote unquote lessons, if you're trying to get your child to write and they are struggling, if they are crying, if they are resisting, drop it. It means that their muscles aren't strong enough yet and they're not really capable. Not to discount that there are kids who are three or four who do want to sit down and write. That's cool. You know what I mean? But let it be child-led. Don't force it. Work instead. Like you can use be using tape and scissors at this age. That's working the three muscles, the, the three fingers, your thumb, your forefinger, and your middle finger. Though tape and and scissors are using those. Those are the same muscles you're going to use to hold a pen. Okay. So remember that the big play don't quantify at this age. You don't need to, you don't need to say, well, I'm doing big play so that their education will be good. Like you don't have to quantify stuff. Watch your child, let them play with other kids, really embrace this collaborative play, especially if you are getting out and about more now. It's, it's a very exciting growth, but I also find this tendency of like, the homeschoolers do this. They'll be at the playground and they're like, oh, this is recess or this is phys ed. And I'm like, you don't have to quantify. It doesn't have to parallel school. You know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, we're doing, we're baking for science. Like, no, shut up. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to directly correlate. Your kid can just be learning how to bake a cake without it being science and measurement. (laughs) Um, For play at this age, work on risk-taking and work on risk-taking for you, not for them, for you. Let go of the ropes a little. Watch your child and encourage risk-taking. In, oh crap, I have a toddler. I have this list, but also you can find it online at backwoodsmama.com. Other people have done it. She's one that I saw first years ago, so I like to give her credit. But it's things you can say instead of saying, be careful. You know, it's watch your footing or how do you think you're going to do that? Or that rock might be slippery with the moss. So there's a lot of things you can say that are observing your child play, but also uh, helping them take some risks, assess risk, but also instead of be careful. The other thing I really like about this list and asking your kid these questions is it's validation. And remember, validation is being seen. So if you're running into Ma, watch me, ma, watch me, ma, watch me, ma, watch, 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 watch. It means your child it feels like they're not being seen in some context. And so when you say, hey, how do you think you're going to hit that next bar? You know, say they're climbing up a ladder. How 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 are you going to do that? You're clearly seeing them. So you eliminate that, a lot of that watch me. So that can be super helpful for that. Games, games at this age, developmentally appropriate. Really, you want to work on your easy games, you know, your Candyland. There's a whole list of games that I've mentioned in other podcasts. The real big thing about this age is taking turns and losing. So that's what I would focus on, taking turns sequence, right? Sequence is numbers in order, taking turns in order, and also occasionally losing. At this age, you know, obviously you're going to let your kid win quite often, but you do want to make sure that you, that your child loses too, because you want to start introducing the idea that yes, you have to lose (laughs) and losing is a a big deal. I think I addressed that in the Q and a podcast 
This age three and four is pre-reading. Again, one of the things I hate about trying to quantify these things by age is that there's always going to be outliers. I know four-year-olds who can read chapter books. So please, if your child kind of is a runaway prodigy in any sort of area, it's totally cool. But don't encourage, please don't try to make your kid a prodigy by making them do things. Like a kid who's four and picks up a chapter book and starts reading, not that that's prodigy, but that's pretty advanced. Don't try to make your kid read Harry Potter at four years old. Like you'll know it if you have it, you know? And I see this in homeschool too. Like people try to create a superstar. That's so damaging. Just let your child ride the wave, yeah? At pre-reading, you should just be Read, 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 read picture books, read chapter books. You can read bigger books. You know, you can do read alouds that have nothing to do with picture books. If you're not limited to just the, the picture books, so don't think you are. Sing songs, play games, and you can have so much fun with this. Basic counting. Don't work on math. Don't work at math at three and four. Like even one plus one is actually an advanced concept. Yeah. If I have one thing and I add another thing, now I have two. That's pretty, That like you can do that with your preschooler, but don't expect that they're going to be like, oh, two plus two equals four. I see people rushing math. Remember that at preschool, uppercase is easier to learn than lowercase. So if your child is struggling with you know, maybe they they do want to start writing, but they're struggling with lowercase. Just go to uppercase. Uppercase is easier to see and undo. You might start at this age connecting letters with sounds. Yeah, so you might start saying like Cheerios, you know, when you get the box out, like that the ch those letters make a combination that spells Cheerios. Again, this is almost like pre-learning. You're like laying the groundwork for learning. So you don't want to have the expectation that then your kid's going to learn that, you know, the consonant blend of CH is, you know, in all these other words, but you just want to start making these corrections. I mean, connections, not corrections. Uh, Colors, of course, and shapes your child should know and, and basic shapes. You know, you don't have to go off on like parallelograms and trapezoids and People do, but but you don't have to. Numbers and counting. Just again, remember that they will not understand that a number represents something, you know? So be very tactile. You can do like, I have one block and I have one block. But remember, they're going to learn by memorization at first. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that's the first step. So work on that. You know, if you work on counting to 100 before you work on mathematical concepts, okay? You can definitely play sort of games like, you know, you're taking the fruit out of your grocery bag. Oh, how many apples did we buy? Or, you know, if they're in the fruit bowl, how many apples are left? Yeah, you can you can do this sort of pre, pre-learning, I, I call it. So those are all the things that happen, you know, three and four, preschool. And some of this will be taken care of if your child goes to preschool, but you just kind of want to back it up. Now let's just touch down on the five and six-year-olds because kindergarten, again, kind of falls into my work. One of the things that happened when we look at the Common Core and what's happening currently, this happened, my son's school was the first, they adopted Common Core before it was a nationwide thing. So Pascal's 14 and a half. So this has been going on for a while. And how they did the Common Core is they went back and unfortunately they didn't include any educators in this. This was all like theoretical. And- I know the basic idea of Common Core is great, that everybody's sort of on a level playing field so that when they get to high school, when they get to the upper upper levels, that everybody's on the same page. But what they did is they said, what, what do kids need to know 
when they get to college. And then they backed it up. They said, okay, well, if they need to know this, this is what they need to do in their senior year. This is what they need to do in their junior year. And they went all the way back to this is what they need in kindergarten. And that's where we got this, like, they need to be reading by the end of kindergarten. That was never true. That was never, ever true before Common Core. Do some kids read? Yeah, of course, you're working on reading, but it was not mandatory. Now it is. So what they did is they spaced it out evenly, which sounds kind of cool, but it's not because kids aren't even. And like I said, the, the, the age between two and three is phenomenal. And the, I see Pascal even now, like the leap he took, he'd be a freshman in high school. The leap he took this year, it's not uh, exponential. It's crazy how much he leapt in one year. So we have these like sort of lulls, I feel like, along the the timeline of age, right? And definitely like second grade, people always say like, do you remember second grade? Like second grade is one of those like almost lull years. Like not a lot happens. People tend to remember first grade. They remember third grade. You remember these certain years because other years just you kind of coast, you know? And so I think that's what happened. The kindergarten has gotten so intense But I find that at this age, it's such a wide variety. So again, keep things level and be a keen observer and and see what, it's not that everything should be easy, but at this age, it shouldn't be frustrating. Your child shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't have to be like, I said, sit down. I said, focus. I said this. It really shouldn't be that. And you may have to fight. You may have to fight your school. And again, I don't blame the teachers at all. This is all higher up. I think teachers are remarkable. But I'm hearing about kindergartners getting an hour or two hours of homework. Like, what the fuck is that? It's five or six-year-old coming home with homework. They should be coming home and playing. So again, play, play, play. You might have to force this. If your kid has homework, I was balls to the wall. I was like, there is no way. Nope, I'm not doing this. And I fought tooth and nail. And I worked with the teacher. I was just like, I'm not doing this. This is intense. And the kid goes to bed at seven. By the time I get play, get dinner, get, you know, grooming and, and reading, there's just, it's too much. So if you have to fight, fight. But there should be play, 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 read, read, read. And if you read to your child, again, in all kinds of circumstances, you're going to be really ahead of the game. And one of the things I realized, and I think I've mentioned this before, is I would save my my pleasure reading till Pascal was in bed. And then I realized he just kind of saw me on the computer, which is my work, right? But he doesn't know that I'm doing work. You know, he wants to be on the computer doing video games, right? So he saw me on the computer. He never saw me reading for leisure, for fun, for taking a brain break. So I I started to institute these breaks where I'd be like, let's read. You grab your book and I'll grab my book. And we sat together and we read quietly. And it, you know, it, it sometimes it was five minutes, sometimes it was 20 minutes, but I wanted him to see that you could just take a break and read, you know? And so be mindful of that because remember, you may be working on your phone. You may be doing something important, but your kid still sees you on your phone. And, and to them, then that's what they want to do. Uh, games. You should be definitely, you know, some more advanced games, uh, chess, Battleship is a great one. Again, I have a a whole list of other advanced games. Definitely go a little more advanced than you think they're capable of because they are super duper capable. It's pretty amazing. And at this age, you definitely want to have them lose a little bit more and work on losing in in game um, sportsmanship because that's just a pretty intense thing. Kids hate losing. (laughs) 
chores at this age, they really should be able to have a small list of things that they can do themselves, whether that's getting dressed in the morning or their whole morning routine, the brushing the teeth, or maybe it's an after dinner. Like I, I always had Pascal clear the table and people were shocked. Like he ended up looking like a really super polite kid because at any gathering he'd clear the table. And, and I like that. I like that he, you know, people were like, oh my God, that's so nice. You know, and how did you get him to do that? And I, it's just like, that was one of the things we worked on, but you definitely can have some independence at this age and you can have the expectation that they should be able to complete some things without your supervision. They should be able to be playing independently. You should be able to say, you know, you can go in your room and play. I have to cook dinner. You know, if you want it to be a speedy dinner and not have them help, they should be helping in the kitchen as much as possible. But I do understand that, especially like if you both work outside the home, it's a clusterfuck and having a child help just extends the process. Yeah. Social emotional growth at this age, you definitely want them to speak for themselves. So whenever you have an opportunity, whether it's a restaurant or somebody asks them how they are or a stranger asks them a question, you want them to speak for themselves. I see a lot of parents just take over that and shut the kid down or just cater to like a shyness, but then get shocked when the child's 10 and won't speak up for themselves. You want to, you want them to start advocating for themselves. You want to try to let them resolve any conflicts that they run into. You can be there and you can mediate but really try and and encourage this in your circle of friends to try to have the child really speak up for themselves. Continue with big play and continue again, even as your child learns to read, I still do read alouds with Pascal. I think it's really important to read aloud to your child all throughout their childhood, even as they hit older years, because it's a listening skill. It's a listening and staying on task. And one of the things that's happened is just by nature of technology, we have totally lost our attention span, all of us collectively. So it's really nice to be able to keep a thought and just have your child be read to. At this age for social emotional, you can expect way bigger feelings. I always say, I think five is just the most hellacious age because there's like this big kid. They have so many skills that they can do by themselves. And yet they still have, they still have a short fuse and a short range of emotional intelligence. And so you really want to work on the nuances of feelings and you can download if you just you know, Google feeling charts that you can pull up a chart that shows like a face with all the nuances of feeling. So jealousy, frustration, the phases of anger, right? There's seething anger, there's quiet anger, there's explosive anger. So I think this is the age where you really want to start exploring those and naming them, validating them without giving into them and expecting that we can start to infuse a little gray in that black and white spectrum. In general, I always say we as a generation of parents talk way too much. And one of the things that happens in the talking too much is we're trying we're trying to get our children to approve of our parenting. It's it's really rampant. It's like you want your child to understand why they're getting a consequence or a punishment or why they're getting reprimanded or we're we're trying to get the child to be okay with it. And you can't, not at this age. Explanations and that sort of relationship talk, that's going to come later. It really is. And if you stick with this zero to six govern, six to 12 garden 
12 to 18 guide. It's so beautiful. You guys, I really, I harp on it all the time because if you do the foundational work now, you're going to have this lovely, rich gardening relationship where, where you're not doing the work of boundaries and discipline, you know? So when we talk too much, even in educating, it's too much for the child and it's too much for them to break in. So really watch your language. Don't ask permission to parent your child, but also when it comes to learning and educating, they're not an empty vessel that you have to fill. They really have their own their quirks, the way they learn, what interests them. Oh, I did want to say too, be really cautious. I I hear this a lot. My kid doesn't have a thing. He's not interested in anything. He doesn't have a thing. I don't know when this started, but your child at this age isn't going to have a thing. Yeah, the idea at this age is name of the game is exposure. Lots of things. Show them lots of things and you'll see when something sparks. You know, some kids have very stereotypical. It's like dinosaurs into Legos, into um, space. Oh, almost all kids go through a shark phase or animal phase. I'm, I'm, a lot of boys go through shark phase and, and these phases. Then there's dinosaurs, then there's space, King Tut. They go through the King Tut phase that they all love. They all love the Egyptian pyramids and sarcophagus. And like, it's so fun. They just, they, there's kind of these stereotypical things, you know? So be aware of just exposure. Like your kid doesn't have to go down any educational rabbit holes, not yet. Or they don't have to have this huge interest, like loving a sport or loving things. The name of the game is exposure. And so the more you can do that and just kind of observe where your kid sparks and you'll see it, it's undeniable. I remember, you know, as a sports example, Pascal was in gymnastics and he did really well. And he was asked to be on the boys team. He was six. It was a lot. It was a lot of practice. It was a lot of time. It was a lot more money. And I was unsure about it. He liked it okay, but it was kind of like whiny. Like, oh, do we have to go? When he was done, he was always happy. So it was one of those areas where I was like, I don't know, do I push this? Like he started more and more resistance. And then he started baseball and he was finally old enough to be like real baseball, not T-ball. And I'll never forget. It was one day he's looking out the window, pouring rain, thunder, lightning, like rain that you can't even see the neighbor's house. It was so thick. And he was furious that there was no practice because who cares about the rain? Let's just get wet. And I was like, oh shit, that's a spark. That's passion. Yeah. And of course we all have to work through some difficulties. We have to work through some hard parts, you know, but that's passion. And so I really think you know, when you observe your child, you can see where they get sparked. And again, I wouldn't expect a passion at this age, but you can see where the interest is and don't try to make them interested in something they're not interested in. Do you know what I mean? And I understand the idea. I I can't remember if I've talked about this before. I understand the idea that children have to work through things that they don't like, but that doesn't mean that they have to do things they hate. For example, drums, Pascal, I was very, very strict there. You have to, you have to play an instrument. You know, he started with drums and then it came to drills and he hated the drills. He hated the drills. And I was like, that's cool. You can hate the drills. He wanted to, then he was like, I want to take guitar. And I was like, that's cool. You can take guitar, but you're going to get to drills on guitar. And I showed him because I was taking guitar. And I said, any instrument, you're going to have to go through this. So you choose if you want to work through this with drums or if you want to work through this with something else. So that's a good example, I think, of, yeah, you got to work through something that's frustrating and hard and that you don't like to get to the next level but it doesn't have to be this thing. Do you know what I mean? And so I just use that a lot as an example of 
because people go, well, you have to do things you hate, which arguably do you, you know, do you have to have a shitty job that you hate? (laughs) I, I hope not, but a lot of people feel that way. So anyway, I think that's a good example. This went on a lot longer than I intended, <laughs> but it's a, it is a, 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 a topic that I'm passionate about. And I just rushing kids along the timeline, it is so damaging. And so I get this a lot in potty training because people think that two years old is rushing potty training and it's not, it's developmentally appropriate completely. And it's so interesting to me that people will be like, not wanting to rush potty training. So they have a four-year-old in diapers who is reading chap, you know, the, who is, who is being rushed developmentally and not reading chapter books on their own, but like taking lessons. And, and I'm like, well, that's developmentally inappropriate, inappropriate. So just keep these things in mind, because again, this, this whole pandemic and this falling behind has led parents and led everybody down this, like, hurry, oh, but we, we have to hurry. And, I just don't think we do. (laughs) And also, you know this, you know, hurrying just fucks you in the end. So anyway, guys, I hope that was helpful. As always, rock on. All right. I'm going to sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, Yummy New Book Presale Treats, when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course, my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified Oh Crap consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.